Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. George Washington spent a considerable amount of his time during the American Revolution deploring his soldiers' uniforms. A man who actually liked to design uniforms, Washington found himself instead simply seeking for a supply of cloth with which to make hunting shirts or leather from which to make shoes. That, for Lindsay schachenbach regales is the origin point of the story she tells in her new book, Manufacturing Advantage, War, the State, and the Origins of American Industry, 1776-1848. It was the military need for textiles, as well as the more obvious need for guns and ammunition, that drove American industrial policy until the Civil War. The need to never rely again on European imports in a time of crisis led the new national government towards what she describes as a de facto partnership between government and industry. Lindsay, uh, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So um, I was immediately attracted to this book when I saw it in the Hopkins Press catalog because it it does several different things at once. And um, I guess we'll we'll get to that eventually at the end. Um, you're putting you're you're doing you're juggling and riding the unicycle. I think in the in the book, and that's that's very cool to watch. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I alluded to... It feels to, less cool. <laughs> it feels awful. But Very, yeah. yeah, I've uh, I alluded to this impetus for this national economic policy. Could you uh, fill out that description that I gave of Washington at Valley Forge? Um, how would you talk about this impetus and say the first 10 years of confederation and then the early constitutional republic? Yeah, so when we think about the development of manufacturing kind of in the American imagination, we tend to think about entrepreneurs in the early 19th century, uh, you know, weaving textiles in increasingly uh, factory settings for the American consumer. Um, but I think the Revolutionary War experience really brought to the fore the physical need to be able to produce American goods, um, both to clothe the military um, and then also to uh, have available for consumers so that they no longer needed to import from um, from Great Britain. Uh, so that that impetus for national policy, which I'm reluctant to officially call it a national policy because I think that it was an ad hoc process that developed um, over time, but it it does it comes from that you know the uh, shortages during the revolution and um, following the revolution the, the recognition that Americans in fact could no longer depend upon their you know colonial parent to provide them with stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I take your point. There, there is not a national policy in a Fabian so socialist sense, let alone a sort of Marxian sense uh, going on. Um, there's no in national industrial plan. Um, 
as you say, Hamilton, uh, his plan doesn't sort of isn't accepted, and it does describe the future, but almost sort of by not by accident, but it's not a plan uh, that's followed. Um, it is a collection of ad hoc choices within a, a larger set of, of, of choices and paths that people take. What is uh, what, one thing that I was thinking about as I was reading it was the way that this does go back to the non-importation agreements. Um, and uh, you discussed morality and textiles, which I thought was very interesting. And I've been wondering how this also fits into a sort of view of Republican virtue uh, that of 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 uh, being independent in all senses of the word, economically and politically, and that's something that Jeffersonians and Hamiltonians can both affirm. Yeah, so there's this tension between both wanting the United States to be a nation among nations and to uh, interact with others, and that includes economically, and that includes having a vibrant, vibrant trade relations with other countries. But then there's also that kind of sense of we need to create a national sense of virtue, a, natural, a national sense of identity. And one way to do that is to imbue both consumption and production with a sense of uh, morality and, and having a basis in independence. And so there's this constant, again, throughout this early Republic period, tension between both the desire to buy nice things from overseas, but also to encourage Americans that the most, you know, virtuous, moral American person could either could purchase, you know, American made things or could make them themselves. But increasingly it becomes purchasing American made things rather than just like this homespun, you know, it evolves into buying American things made in in factories. Yeah. So the the whole buy America label is very, very old. Yes. And that and that's not to say that it's in and it's it's a slow process because again people are more than willing following the revolution to go back to buying things sure absolutely and, and uh, just as they were those non-importation agreements weren't the greatest success um, right. nonetheless it's important um, there's a deeper there's a political economic um, importance to the fact that Washington insisted on wearing a suit made of Connecticut cloth. It was uh, an outlier in 1789, but still, it was a, it was he was saying something important with that. Exactly, and so it had to be demonstrated, and it had to be, and that's why there needed to be government intervention, is because most Americans, again, were more than happy to just purchase from overseas. Merchants were, the um, average consumer was, and so there needed to be government policies, government displays, government financial assistance to stimulate the production of goods in American factories. Now, there the two goods that you focus on are weapons and, um, and textiles. And that is because um, they're the two industries that the United States became most kind of technologically advanced in. They became, Americans became known for the, both the textile mills um, in, say, Lowell, Massachusetts, as well as the interchangeable gun parts made in mm -hmm. uh, the federal armories and the factories of private contractors. So 
it's a way to look at two industries, one overtly federal, you know, guns being made at federal armories, uh, being subsidized by the federal government, and then textiles, which are a private undertaking, are undertaking but um, that nonetheless relied on kind of subtle government help and to kind of take two industries that are usually looked at separately, thought about separately, put them together and see what that kind of public-private blending can tell us about the need for American-made goods for broader national security and that national security being both physical military reality but also a kind of more ideological sense of um, sufficiency of, you know, as a nation among nations. And the third, I guess we could put in there, and you, you mentioned it, but it's not part of your study because you're interested in New England, would be the DuPont and the gunpowder in, in Delaware, which is a, a very important component of, of the entire um, sort of na- this ad hoc national policy. Yes, exactly. Um, and Andrew Fagel's doing great work on uh, gunpowder uh, manufacturing and has some good articles on DuPont. And I I guess I limited it also to New England just for sake of, you know, geographical bounds to yeah. a project and as well as the fact that um, the first kind of fully integrated textile system was there and then it's the location of the federal armory and um, I decided to focus more on small arms rather than all forms of munitions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we'll get back to, to both but I, you, you in chapter two you have an English character Henry Wansey who visits America and visits New England and what what does Wansey see and what does he miss I thought that was very interesting. What he what he what he misses is as interesting as what he sees. Yeah, so I chose Wansey because he he's traveling around kind of right at the very beginnings of a nascent, you know, industrial revolution or whatever we want to call it. And so you see him observing little bits of um, straggling manufacturing but he also he doesn't where one place he doesn't go is to Rhode Island to see where he would have seen um what some consider the first kind of successful textile undertaking in the United States well that's debatable but uh Samuel Slater's mills in Rhode Island um he also he get he goes through western Massachusetts once the federal government has already um, purchase land to develop a federal armory, but before production or anything has begun there. I mean, there's a federal there's a federal arsenal there, but they haven't begun the actual manufacturing of weapons. So he misses that. But it's really interesting to see him um, kind of get a lay of the land before anything really takes off. Um, How- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So, how does um, how do textiles take off, and how how do they rely upon uh, governmental support of some kind? So they rely on government support first in the for, in the in the most kind of obvious way in the form of tariffs, and and those don't 
really become influential until 1816. So prior to that, um, the other way that they kind of benefit from federal policies are the uh, non-importation that happens prior to the War of 1812 as a way to kind of attempt to punish Great Britain, um, although it did not turn out to be much of a punishment for them. Um, and, and that, you know, some historians credit as the beginning of uh, American manufacturing because, you know, without being able to import um, British goods as cheaply, it provided some kind of incentive for aspiring entrepreneurs to start developing um, manufacturing. But I think another way that the government started to benefit the textile industry is partly, so the men that are responsible for the, the wool mills, the kind of hallmark of uh, the American you know, factory area, they benefited from um, favorable trade policies prior to their uh, founding of the mills at Lowell. They also, some of the investors in that undertaking were financially basically rewarded for shipping problems that they had during the Napoleonic Wars. And as a result of the transcontinental treaty with Spain, the United States government assumed the claims of American citizens against the Spanish government for shipping depredations. And so this privileged group of New England factory entrepreneurs had been among the people that had shipping claims. And they were, I think, disproportionately rewarded with federal capital at precisely the time that they're expanding their industrial undertakings. And what year is that? That's 1819. The treaty is uh, signed, ratified in 21. And then the Claims Commission is wraps up in 1825. So And they, they know ahead of time that they're going to be getting those funds. And then there's also diplo- U.S. diplomacy in Latin America that's increasingly opening up markets for their mm-hmm. goods those same years. What, but it, it, nevertheless, though, it, it seems that where's the, where's the incentives being provided to the textile industry before 1812 other than the embargo? It seemed to me, wouldn't, wouldn't there be uh, federal contracts that would make the difference between um, give a kickstart to a factory? Um, do those occur? Uh, where, where, how's the army being clothed? Admittedly, it's relatively small, but so are the factories. Right. So that's what's different about the difference between the arms and textile industries at the beginning is that the military is relying more on imported uh, cloth. And that's why um, just prior to the War of 1812, uh, Tench Cox, who's the purveyor of public supplies, he actually sends out uh, circulars to various manufacturers saying you've got to match the quality of these imports. Like we have to be able to produce military grade cloth because the the factories that had started, they were producing more for the regular civilian rather than like military grade cloth. And so he's sending them examples of Russian duck and saying, you know, you need to match this. And so that's the incentive, but it, it's, it's, there's less government, intervention in the textile industry at first. The main concern is the arms industry. So let's talk about uh, arms. Um, how did that system work? And this is envisioned by Henry Knox when he's Secretary of War, right? Um, that he's going to set up these arsenals. 
He picks, well, Massachusetts, almost naturally. And um, where else? Harper's Ferry. Harper's Ferry. And I think there's a brief talk about doing it down in South Carolina, but that doesn't amount to anything. Um, what, how, do, how do they work? Who, who funds them? Where do the, who buys the weapons, et cetera, et cetera? So the two federal armories are funded annually by congressional appropriations, and they are run by a superintendent who is appointed by the federal government, and they produce um, muskets and rifles for the regular army. They, at first, because the armories aren't able to produce enough, they the government begins kind of letting out con- letting contracts to individual arms manufacturers to uh, kind of bolster supplies. Then, with the passage of the 1808 Militia Act, Congress uh, decides that you know the federal government should be supplying weapons for the various state militia, but that those weapons can't come from the federal armories. <laughs> They've got to come from private manufacturers because there's still that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, tension between big centralized military and, and state controlled militia. So the government is providing the weapons and the funding for those state militia, but they've got to go through private factories. And so the government lets out contracts to private manufacturers. And one of them is Eli Whitney, um, Azel Waters in Massachusetts is another, and there's a, there's a host of contractors and they, that the kind of chief group of them that gets solidified around the war of 1812, they start experimenting with these contracts in the late 1790s, especially as they're gearing up for a feared war against France. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Eli Whitney. Um, there's a lot of myth around Eli Whitney. Um, the reality is, I, I think, probably as interesting, but the myth is pretty powerful. Um, there's the myth that he invented interchangeable parts, which he did not. Um, other people had come up with similar systems. Um, so what did Eli Whitney actually do? <laughs> Eli Whitney was good at getting work he's most famous for the cotton gin but he was not good at making money from that so there that, so he, that's one place where he actually failed to get work but then he knew that the federal government was looking for arms contractors in the late 1790s he's pretty well connected with people in the executive branch um He's friends with uh, Secretary uh, Treasury Secretary Oliver Wolcott. Another so, another Yale graduate, I believe. Exactly, yeah. he works the Yale connections, yeah. and so he uh, convinces them that he like he's like I can I can make things, so I can set up a you know I can set up a factory and make weapons. Um, and he gets an advance sum contract, and he starts producing. Um, he starts producing small firearms for the federal government on contract. And that becomes his kind of chief business undertaking. He is right. He did not invent interchangeable production. He read about it. 
uh, Jefferson was fascinated with it and had written about what he had observed when he was in France. So Eli Whitney is aware of kind of the cutting edge technology available in Europe at the time, and he's implementing it in his factory. But the process for interchangeability neither began nor ended with Whitney and uh, historians like Merritt Rose Smith have talked a lot about other other guys like uh, John Hall and Simeon North and their influence on that on the process. Um, yeah, it's it, the the gun problem is, uh, I think, for the for the government when wishing to supply to depend upon their own American resources. Uh, the problem is, I understand it from I've got another podcast, uh, which by the time this podcast drops, uh, it, it should be available, which is a long conversation with the Williamsburg master gunsmith, Richard Sullivan. And guns are just so cheap to get from England. Um, there's really no reason to um, buy a musket, at least, um, in America uh, when you can get a, a cheap British one. Because even by the 1770s, if, if I'm recall what Sully said, um, you've got people in London who have shops of with 20 to 25 specializations uh, all in within to making one gun. And they're basically creating an interchangeable parts system and a factory already. Um, they're doing it in a way that we would regard as like really, you know, uh, far too um, artisan-like to be mass production, but it really is mass production um, by certainly by the standards of the Eli Whitney standards, I think. Um, this is not, he's not, yeah. Um, so, and, and rifles are a special case. Uh, only Americans make those and they make them way out on the edge of the frontier usually, um, pushing and pushing farther west. So um, to create the, a so there's there's a real economic you really do have to create your own arsenal in order to get a supply of weapons that is not dependent upon uh, European craftsmen. Yes, definitely, and and yeah, the gun manufacturing that exists in in America prior to all of these contracts it it is more it's very skilled craftsmen out Extre- on the front. extremely skilled. Extremely skilled, right, but not doing the kind of right mass production and specialized. And that happens eventually at the Springfield Armory and stuff, but where the U.S. is certainly behind on that um, until, again, the government gets involved. Mm -hmm. The, um, yeah, and it's, do the, um, how does it work? I mean, I I don't, I'm taking you probably far afield. So Hull designs his breech loading rifle, um, the, what some people potentially call the M1819. Uh, no one did it at the time. Did they then, did he sell or license that to private people like Whitney's factory or other factories? The ordnance department would um, send around patterns of the kind of latest development. So depending on, they would, um, if somebody had a, if somebody, if a manufacturer had a patent on a, a weapon, they would sometimes either purchase that patent or, um, Renumerate that per, that manufacturer in some way, but they would send around again these standards and have the various contractors and the federal armories m- meet that standard, and mm-hmm. and so Halls becomes one of those standards. So, what um, do do you find the War of eighteen twelve demonstrating the success of this of these policies? Yes, because it is the first time that the United States is self-sufficient in 
arms production. It's not yet in in textiles. Mm-hmm. And that and that I should say too that the American-made textiles. The main impetus behind that is not necessary, at least not at first, being able to produce for the military. That is a kind of a side. The textiles reveals more the textile production as kind of a visible display of, you know, national independence and mm-hmm. national security. But, but in terms of military production of weapons that the war of 1812 is the first time that the United States doesn't need to, to import anymore. And so it's, it's, it's a success in that sense. And it's also a, technically a mil, also a military stalemate, but you know, um, <laughs> the fact that the United States gets its finally, you know, second independence from Great Britain means that, yeah, they were able to, and, and they never ran out of guns or ammunition. Um, as someone actually said about the Confederate Army, um, but that's the United States didn't run out of guns and ammunition during the War of 1812. Right. They, the supplies were low by the end and they, you know, recognized, and that's why there's a need to ramp up production efforts following the War of 1812 because they recognized that if the war had continued mm-hmm. any longer, they would have faced some problems. Um, the Ordnance Department. Uh, you alluded to that just a few minutes ago. What is it, um, and when did when was it really formally um, created? So it's the branch of government in charge of uh, weapon supply, and it had existed. There's been some form of kind of ordinance group since the revolution, but it's created as a separate branch. Um, during the war of 1812 to more effectively deal with supply issues because before that there was like a purveyor of public supplies. There was overlap with the quartermaster general's department. There's a lot of kind of bureaucratic inefficiencies. And so creating the separate ordinance department is a way to shore that up. So then they become the kind of overseer of the federal armories and these contracts with private manufacturers. So they become a sort of the contact point between the executive branch, which is after all is tiny, um, so that in some ways their importance is even magnified by being part of that executive branch, um, and the contact between it and industry. So this is part of the sort of national security capitalism we talk about, quote unquote. Yes. Um, so how do they, um, and this, are they further reformed under Calhoun? Are these part of these big war department reforms like 1818, 1819, when everything's being shaken up and they're trying to have a more efficient armed services? Yes. But then actually as a result of those, um, reforms, they lose their status as an independent bureau in 1821 and get kind of submerged with the Corps of Artillery and then are reestablished as an independent bureau in the early 1830s. And that's, there's a lot of congressional debate about that, but certain congressmen argue that the ordinance department is like uniquely positioned or uniquely suited to being in charge of small arms supply and it's it's dangerous to leave it to anybody else. Mm-hmm. So how do they stimulate manufacturing? So there's this guy, DCS Wadsworth, who's chief of the ordnance department in the 18 teens, and he's really key, I think, in um, really encouraging 
standardization that had not before existed. I mean, there were, you know, manufacturers had to meet these, these government standards and stuff, but he's really, I think, instrumental in, um, in really getting production up to, up to kind of a uniform standard. So he's, and he writes lots and lots of letters to the various contractors and to, he's in close contact with the superintendent of the Springfield Armory and at Harper's Ferry. Um, and I think it's partly with him, his kind of heavy oversight and, um, and vision that, that helps kind of, uh, really launch the interchangeable production and take, uh, American manufacturing of small arms to a new level and, and allow it to, by the 1820s, be something that, you know, British, the British armories are sending over observers to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think he's a key figure in that. And this is, there has to be emphasized. This is before the creation. This is before Samuel Colt begins his factory. This is, this is all uh, British representatives are coming over to look at Harper's Ferry and uh, Springfield. Yes, exactly. Um, and they've, so they've put in the, uh, the whole system of interchangeable parts and that's what spreads to the rest of eventually American industry. Um, what else do they do besides that, those sorts of, it's these contracts that are, that are stimulative? It's the contracts. It's just the, um, I mean, it's the federal funding that mm-hmm. comes from Congress. It's the contracts. And then it's the regulation of these factors. It's having inspectors go out and, you know, make sure that manufacturers are producing in line with these government standards. They're being proofed by the inspectors and, um, and all of that. So this is when good enough for government work had the reverse meaning that it does now. Yes. And they, they were totally, yeah, dependent on, right. Um, but it, it was, it was, they were actually doing cutting edge work, even though they were right, producing for the government. Yeah. Um, the, uh, what's now let's step back a bit before we began recording, you talked about this as a, a work of political economy. Um, what do you mean by political economy? It's an old-fashioned word, which has become new-fashioned again, which I think is good. Um, what do you mean by it? The intersection of government and economic life, and the and studying where the uh, where the the state steps in when the market doesn't provide. So it's combining both politics and economic or a way you might even say where sometimes politics steps in where the the market doesn't wouldn't want to go um sometimes you do the political pressure or the the pressure of political culture could change economic incentives in ways other than through uh profit and loss yes exactly and in in my narrative i think that political connections and people are also an important part of a story of how a a nation's economy functions. So it's also bringing that kind of in. So what, what, give an example of uh, one or two of those sort of connections, because they're, as you describe them as a, um, oh gosh, now I can't, now I can't find it in my notes, but these sort of these deep web of, of interrelationships. We've already talked about Eli Whitney and Oliver Walcott uh, being Yaley's. Um, and because they shared the the blue together, they were, you know, they were able to cooperate together. But there are lots of other examples. Right. So say Nathan Appleton, 
a textile manufacturer and merchant in Massachusetts, close connections to U.S. diplomat William Tudor, who is uh, serving as a consular agent during uh, the Latin American and independence wars, or the kind of the end of that. He's in one place he's stationed is Lima, Peru, um, and so he's kind of advocating for policies that would, will be favorable to American manufacturers more broadly, and then specifically the types of policies that benefit fit the particular kinds of cloth that are produced in Appleton's and the other Lowell Mill guys' uh, undertakings. So that's another one of those uh, kind of connections on the textile side. It's interesting to me um, thinking about this because in many ways, what I see your narrative as, as doing, and perhaps unintentionally, is completely endorsing Jefferson and Madison's suspicions of the Hamiltonian program and of Jackson, of, of Henry Clay's American system, um, that this is uh, crony capitalism and that it's being done on behalf of the, by the Senate on behalf of uh, New England uh, states and manufacturers and mechanics and industrials at the expense of Western and Southern farmers. Discuss. I don't think I see it as at the expense of. I think that there were multiple interests involved and there are certainly privileged individuals within this system and there's certainly a place for cronyism for sure. But that there's a way in which all of these actors had both self-interest and national interest at heart. Well, I, maybe not all actors, but at least some of the kind of government agents. And um, and I don't think that it happened at the expense of rural farmers. If anything, they benefited from the production of weapons that then enabled the United States to consolidate its control over the continent and provide, you know, more territory and opportunity and safety from what, who many, you know, people living in the West as hostile native groups. Um, so it was certainly to the detriment of those folks, but, um, but I think that it, it was not necessarily contradictory to the interests of Westerners. When did, um, now tariffs remained, gosh, important in American history until really very recently. Um, no one really bought into this free trade nonsense until <laughs> after, yeah. after World War II. You know, then it, it took, it's it actually, the, it's sort of like abolitionism, uh, free trade. It's like, uh, it's so contrary to the all policy and thought before it, that it's really extraordinary that it took place at all. Um, I've never made that connection before. I probably shouldn't do it again. Um, but it, it's true that tariffs, they lasted for a long, long time. Uh, did, um, in the Civil War, is this same system still going on, this sort of support? It, it's The Civil War is so incredibly massive, as a, just simply as a manufacturing event, that it must have given, had to give way to something else. Springfield Armory... And Harper's Ferry, obviously, is a contested ground, but Springfield Armory can't make weapons for the entire Union Army. No. So by then, there the government's less is less r reliant on 
a kind of set group of contractors, but it it lets out lots of private contracts. I mean, Samuel Colt supplies weapons for, I think, both Confederate and Union troops during the war. Um, and they're actually, I think, and now this is not my area of research, but I think the federal government also might have had to import some weapons then, but it I'm did, not yeah. Yeah. So, right. Um, so certainly, right. They, that's an, a whole new scale. Um, well, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a different sort of political economy by the 1850s and certainly, or by the 1860s? Is this, is there a different way of approaching this sort of, um, this national security capitalism or thinking about it? Yeah, there's both, I think more overt, recognition of the importance of federal policies and kind of centralized planning. And even the fact that then we have, you know, the green, the green back and, and even in terms of monetary policy. But then after that, there's also, I think, a shift away from the state and a return to laissez-faire policy. So I yeah, I'm not sure how I would define kind of national security policy for like the second half of the 19th <laughs> century. And, then, and I don't know at what point we can fully say that we have the military industrial complex. In some ways, you know, I'm arguing that there's roots of it in the early republic, but perhaps it is a term that's simply left to its context in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um what uh, I, I'm curious about the questions that you started asking that led to this study. So this began, you indicate in uh, your in the notes and in, in the forward as a um, as a paper, as a graduate student. Um, so what questions did you start to ask that eventually led to a thesis? So this actually started not really even having to do with industry. I was really interested in. U.S. relations with Spain during the Latin American independence wars. Okay. And so I started looking at uh, trade policy and State Department papers, and I found out about these that transcontinental treaty in which this privileged group receives this huge chunk of federal payouts. Um, and so in conjunction with that, I was also looking at consular dispatches Um, from Latin America. And I started to see references to manufactured goods. I also saw references to like arms being sold in Latin America, although not uh, kind of officially, this was all happening um, kind of under the radar. And so then I decided first, I started looking at the uh, Springfield Armory records at the Waltham branch of the National Archives. And I, the first thing I saw was actually a reference to arms being sold in um, Latin America. And then that was like the last I saw of that, because again, this was supposed to be happening, not officially. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this kind of con, it was the long and windy path that got me to deciding to look at uh, industry. And then, and then I did start to, somebody said to me, is this military industrial complex? And that's when I kind of started to think in those terms and then it evolved into what is the precise relationship between the federal government and economic development around manufacturing. And then it evolved 
this national security capitalism. But again, it was a pretty windy process. Or we should say like national security capitalism, the beta version or the alpha version even. I mean, it's yeah. like a proto-national security capitalism. Um, I, I quoted to you, I mean, I, and people listen to the podcast have heard me say this before, oftentimes uh, Edmund S. Morgan and one of his great reviews was referring to actually Charles Royster's The Revolutionary People at War. And he said, this is social history, intellectual history, institutional history, political history, and not any single one of them, which is to say that it is good history. And uh, we both agreed that we would love to have one of our books uh, described in such a way. Um, not sure that any of mine could be, but um, there is, um, for a lot of people that are expecting one thing these days, and this comes from the, what, the Hopkins series on industrial, yeah, studies in early American economy and society. But it's also political history. It's got that little bit of military history in there. I mean, broadly understood. It's got a little bit of everything, maybe except religion. Maybe I missed that. Yeah, um, there's religion, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, does that make you nervous? That it's a little, yes. I mean, and that's what makes me nervous about the field of history of capitalism in general, because there's a way in which, you know, can be everything and nothing. Mm -hmm. um, but I do see this, I guess, ultimately as, yeah, a work of um, history of political economy. And um, as I even move forward to my next, my next project, I guess that's the kind of key interest that or key way that I continue to define my approach to research. And so studying right, the, the intervention of government in uh, economic life broadly defined. What, uh, what are you thinking of? What are you doing for your next project? So my next project, I think, is going to be a quasi-biography of Joel Roberts' point set. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, poinsettia is named after him. Um, but he's our first minister plenipotentiary in Mexico in the 1820s. He had been a secret agent in Latin America in the 18-teens, and then he's Secretary of War in the 1830s uh, and is involved in Indian removal. And um, is uh, one of de Tocqueville's principal informants. He, de Tocqueville learns a lot. I've been reading de Tocqueville's notes, and he learns a lot from Poinsett. Yeah, no, he's, so he's all over the whole early Republic period. Um, and so I want to kind of use him to understand um, economic development, military power through the, the life of an individual and through the kind of intersection of diplomacy, congressional politics, and the military, which is, again, my kind of chief driving interests. Well, my guest today has been Lindsay Regale. She's author of Manufacturing Advantage, War, the State, and the Origins of American Industry, 1776-1848, which is hot off the press from the Johns Hopkins University Press. Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.